All right, well, the last time I preached, which was in June, I think, I told a story about my youngest son, Isaac, throwing water bottles and dancing on the tables as I was trying to make him breakfast, which many of you found funny, and as traumatizing as it was for me, it actually is kind of funny. But it wasn't really like super funny in that moment. But ever since I told that story, like without fail, every week somebody approaches me and says, you got any more funny Isaac stories? And the answer to that question is always yes. <laughs> always yes. So in the spirit of our shared curiosity about Isaac's hijinks, I'd like to tell another story about him this morning. Though this story, truthfully, is not funny. You're gonna hear about one of my worst and probably scariest moments as a parent this morning. About three weeks ago, I think it was about three weeks ago, Laura took Wyatt, our oldest son, to soccer practice, and I stayed home with Isaac and with our second child, Calvin. Now, sometimes when you're home alone with children, you know, the body doesn't know you're home alone and nature calls. And I needed to use the restroom for what I knew would be a very short amount of time. However, you know, as we discussed last time, as I shared last time, Isaac does have a knack for getting into mischief when he's bored. And I learned last time that I need to tell him what to do, what and not what not to do. So I took them down to our basement, I put some songs on and started a dance party and told them we're gonna dance as silly as we possibly can. And I thought that was gonna buy me at least five minutes. <laughs> well, I quickly went and did my business, which absolutely 100% for sure took less than three minutes. And I know it was less than three minutes because the same song was playing when I came back as when I left. But I came back into our basement playroom and Isaac is gone. I thought, oh, well, he does like to get into our canned goods in the laundry room. So I walked around the corner into the laundry room and checked in there. Nope, no Isaac. Well, our basement steps lead to our back door. So I run up the stairs and the door is shut to going outside, but I don't wanna like discount anything. So I go outside and he's not in our backyard. Thank good, he's not out here and I can see our fence gates shut. But just to be safe, I go over to the fence and I peek over and he's not in our driveway. I'm pretty confident he's not outside. So I go back into the house. I look in his bedroom, my bedroom, the kitchen, dining room, living room, bathroom. He's nowhere on the first floor. I go up to the second floor. I look in both the bedrooms and the bathroom up there. No Isaac. Now at this point, I'm thinking he must have like trapped himself in a closet or like it's like an episode of Scooby-Doo and I'm walking into one room and he's walking out of it. Like I think that's probably the most realistic situation. But on my way to go back downstairs, I decide I'm gonna look outside just one more time to be sure. And as I peer out of our second story window, I can see him standing in the middle of the street, staring down a work truck with a man who is much bigger than I am, standing over him doing this. <laughs> well, I run downstairs, out the front door as fast as I can, scoop him up. How did you get outside? And I thank that man so much. Thank you for stopping your truck. Thank you for making sure he was safe. He said, oh, he was just wandering around out here, like in the middle of the street. So I stopped my truck. I wasn't sure where he was supposed to go. I thanked him again, and I took him back inside. And now I understand Isaac differently than I did before. <laughs> All right, I see him better for who he is and what he's really capable of. 
and I don't mean that in like this like negative way, right? Like, oh, all the things Isaac can do, but I definitely underestimated his level of independence and determination. I had no idea he would think clearly enough to close the doors and gates behind him on his way outside. I definitely didn't expect him to wait for me to leave the room and take off the second I wasn't in sight, which is the only way that could have happened because he's kind of slow on stairs and it would have taken him at least a minute and a half to get up the stairs to get outside. Well, my view of who he is, my more right view of who he is, has changed the way I see the world too. Right, I think about locking our fence gates with padlocks now. It's changed my view of who he is too. Right? I don't take for granted a closed door means that he's not in there or out there, or that he, and now he gets to come to, with me to the bathroom even when we're at home. Right? He gets no unsupervised time when there's only one adult in the house. Well, for the last several weeks, we've been studying the Gospel of John. We've been working our way sequentially through the book, and today we've arrived in the second half of chapter three. Now, in a moment, we're going to read about an interaction between John the Baptist and his followers. Now, in like full disclosure, transparency, John the Baptist is like one of my all-time favorite people in Scripture. Like, I think he's super interesting, and I legitimately became obsessed with this particular passage when I was in my early 20s. So if I get kind of weird about it this morning, I'm, I'm not sorry about it. You're just going to have to live with it. This morning, we're going to see how John's understanding of who Jesus is made his view of the world and his view of himself radically different from the other people around him. So anyway, let's read it. We're going to start in verse 22 of chapter 3, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Feel free to follow along in your own Bible or Bible app. And I think we have some Bibles in the back as well by the welcome box. If you'd like one of those, those are also available. I think we'll have it on the screen too, but you know, there's definitely something powerful about reading it on your own. All right, John 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon, near Selim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Now, this was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. 
So last week, we, we took a break from our series through John for a guest message, which was excellent. It was a fantastic sermon. But we missed the first half of John 1, which is too bad in some ways because it's, you know, one of the most famous and powerful parts of the whole gospel. It's also unfortunate because the gospel is God's word and it's a work of literature. Both things are true. Inspired word of God, work of literature. Now, often in the gospels, we see stories sequenced in a certain way for impact, right? What comes before a passage and what comes after it help frame our understanding of what happens within that particular passage. Now, this is extremely true in the gospel of Mark but it's also true of every other gospel, including John's. In the first half of John 3, Jesus had laid out the purpose and mission of his ministry, including some deep insight into who he is and why he's come. And that's what precedes our passage today. So when you take a look at the start of our passage, where John talks about Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride, that context makes that even more important. Right? The, author, the author John, not John the Baptist, that's going to be a little confusing at times this morning. The author John put the stories together to show us the correct response to the teaching of Jesus in the first half of the passage. That when we really know and understand who Jesus is and what he's done, what his ministry was about, it dramatically changes our understanding of the world around us. Now, John the Baptist is our model this morning in responding to Jesus. So this view of Jesus, right, that John has, it leads him to use this imagery of a wedding. Now, that wouldn't have been culturally common imagery that was used of the Messiah in that day, right? Frequently, the Messiah was seen as a king or a conqueror or a warrior who would liberate Israel from the Romans and would come to usher in a new kingdom like the ones of David and Solomon, right? Men who were kings, rulers, wise, but not John the Baptist. That's not his view. His understanding of Jesus is a much gentler image of a wedding, a union between heaven and earth, the forging of a forever, unbreakable promise. Right? It's not the first time this kind of imagery was used in Scripture. In the Old Testament, we see it used a few times, including in Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to read in a moment here Hosea 2, 16 through 20. If you want to look it up, you're welcome to. Um, but it, it is some really powerful imagery of a wedding in the Old Testament. So this is what it says, starting in verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the bales from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword in battle I will abolish from the land so that it may all lie down and safely. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in loving compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Now, this passage in Hosea 2 is very interesting because part of the context of it is that right before this, Israel is condemned for her unfaithfulness, for worshiping false gods, placing other things of high importance, higher importance than the one true God, than Yahweh. Right? The metaphor of a prostitute is used to describe Israel, which is magnified by the understanding that Hosea, in the beginning of Hosea in chapter 1, literally marries a prostitute to be a living representation of this, right? Now, that's some serious commitment to the message of the prophet, right? To live it out to the degree that it directly impacts who you marry, 
right? It lends credibility to what Hosea is saying, right? These aren't cheap words. He's living out what he's talking about. But anyway, despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God promises a covenant, like a marriage, to cover Israel in righteousness and justice, to cover her in love and compassion, to bring them out of shame, to clothe her in faithfulness. And the Lord is the one who does all of it. The only action taken by the chosen people is that they will acknowledge the Lord. John the Baptist's ministry was calling people to repent and be baptized, to reject and turn from their unfaithfulness to God, to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, to acknowledge the Lord. Right? Why would anyone need to prepare their hearts for a conqueror or turn from their unfaithfulness for a king or a soldier with power and absoluteness? No, they needed to become ready for their promised spouse, for the change in relationship from master to husband. And so this becomes the focus of John the Baptist's ministry, to prepare, Je or to prepare people, I'm sorry, for the metaphorical wedding with Jesus, for a perfect union with Christ, to soften their hearts towards things of heaven and to reject false gods and change their sin and to clearly see and respond to Jesus. All right, John doesn't just talk about Jesus as the groom, though. He also describes the essential and foundational truth that Jesus is our only hope as humanity. Right? Think back to the end of the passage. Right In verse 34, it says, For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whomever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now, if you're familiar with John 3.16, that should sound a little familiar, right? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. That's what the NIV says, right? But many other translations interpret that word gave as sent. The Son is the one whom is sent. Now, this is unquestionably a, pa a passage about Jesus. And there's this recognition about the superiority of Jesus, but there's also this amazing mirror of John 3.16. In fact, I think if you were to take John's teaching and John 3.16 and put them as a Venn diagram, they'd be almost a perfect circle. Right? Whoever believes in him, Jesus, will not perish but have everlasting life. John says whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Right, John is restating the teaching of Jesus here. And there's definitely some key similarities. One of those is that the default relationship between God and humanity is one of enmity. God's wrath remains on them, is what John says. And the words of Jesus imply that the default state is to perish. Now that understanding would have been in perfect sync with the Jewish worldview and belief system of that time. Right, they'd been sacrificing and making offerings for thousands of years because they knew that without something, they were doomed to perish and to experience the wrath of God. But neither John nor Jesus discuss that default state in isolation. Right, Jesus says the reason the Son is sent is to give everlasting life to those who believe. John says the exact same thing, just a little differently. Right, he says whomever believes in the Son has eternal life. The teaching of Jesus, understood correctly by John, just shatter the commonly held religious and cultural views. Right? The truth that it existed for centuries. The one whom is sent, 
the Son, gives eternal life to those who believe. Now, that's a truth that stretches beyond the philosophical, the theoretical, the theological, right? It's, it's concrete. It's real. It's something you can hold on to. It's practical and tangible. Belief in Jesus changes everything about how we see the world. Because now, for the believer, the default state is not death, but life. Right? When my kids, when my kids skin their knee, we celebrate how God made their bodies to heal. When a loved one passes away, we yearn for the day we'll see them again when Jesus makes all things new. And when, as a family, we have a season where things are difficult for one reason or another, we reflect on how God has met our needs before. He knows what we need and celebrate that he's going to do it again. Pain isn't final. Loss isn't forever. In those moments, there's hope in the reminder of the promise that Jesus is the one who gives life eternal and makes all things new. It transforms and it radicalizes how we see and respond to our world. It should also transform how we respond to each other, right? both to believers and to those who don't believe. I mean, like, the stakes are eternal. They're huge. And I don't want to diminish the eternal stakes in this teaching, but there's hope and a reminder of the faithfulness of God in everyday life that's worth sharing too. Right? I have memories of being a teacher and being in department meetings where my colleagues would get frustrated about a new initiative or a change or some unexpected obstacle, but I very seldom got really frustrated by those things. And when they would ask me why, and they almost always asked me why, I faithfully told them every time that it was because God had done so much good in my life that no amount of bad or frustration could ever overcome it. Right? My ledger was always in the black. It was always positive. And sometimes that opened a door for me to share more about what Jesus had done for me and for them. Right? It's transformed our marriage too, right? When Laura and I are at our best in those worst moments, we're holding tight to each other and to Jesus with the knowledge and hope that pain is temporary, but the good that is done in Jesus and the good in who Jesus is is forever. The hope we have in Jesus is for eternity, but it's also for today and for tomorrow and for next week and next month and next year. Right? Eternal life isn't some far off distant thing. If you're a believer, you're already in the middle of it. Everlasting life starts now and it's made perfect when Jesus makes all things new. Speaking of making things new, when I was in college, I took Calculus One. That's a pretty standard introductory math class for anyone who has a degree in the sciences. It's not some big achievement. But to me, it felt like a big accomplishment. Now, when I was in high school, I failed calculus twice. Full-on failed it. Well, actually, the second time might have been a D minus. But, like, I, like, I did not do well in that class. And everything about it confused me. It was really hard. I struggled and struggled and came up fruitless twice after which I swore off ever taking another math class again because at this point I felt like algebra was intuitive and geometry made sense, but I must have hit a point where math no longer exists in the real world. <laughs> well, when I was in college, I changed my majors and for a brief period of time, I was a math major. And despite my previous experiences, I was determined to take and pass Calc 1 because I really wanted to do statistics. But my grit and determination really weren't all that necessary the third time I took calculus. 
because my professor had a radically different approach than my high school teacher did in teaching it. Instead of teaching me the process, the step-by-step -step of how to solve problems, he showed our class how calculus answered questions that we didn't even know how to ask yet. He walked us through how tangent lines explained the functions of a speedometer, how integrals were essential in manufacturing and economics, and all of a sudden, calculus began to make more sense and became more intuitive for me. When I understood the world and how calculus was everywhere and in everything, I began to realize how I related to the dance of differentiation that had to happen in some of those problems. And it changed everything for me. Both in Calculus 1 and 2, I went the entire semesters without getting less than a 98% on a single test. It transformed who I became as a person. At least professionally it did, right? I was recruited after those two very successful semesters in calculus to tutor freshmen and sophomores in our math lab on campus. And that experience is what led me to become a special ed teacher because I knew what it felt like to struggle in school, to pound my head into the wall when a teacher explained it the same way over and over without really understanding it and how important it was for somebody to teach it differently than the normal, traditional approach. I wanted to be that person for someone else, for a student who struggled in math, and to find new ways to help them connect and understand the interwoven nature between what we teach in school and how it's important in reality. Well, understanding the teaching of calculus is good, but understanding the teachings of Jesus is so much better. Right, just like my own experiences in college transformed the trajectory of my professional life, John the Baptist's understanding of Jesus' teaching radically influenced how he saw himself. It didn't just change how he understood the world and the relationship between God and the world, but it changed him. Right, have you ever met a small business owner who wanted their competitors to be more successful than they were and referred new business out as soon as it came in? Or how about an author when somebody says, which of your books should I buy? They say, you shouldn't buy one of my books. You should buy one of these other authors' books. Right? It, like, it just doesn't happen that much. It doesn't make sense. But that's John's response to Jesus' rise in popularity in this passage. John's disciples point out the crowds are following Jesus away. And John, at this point, is at pretty much the height of his popularity in ministry. And his response in that moment is, good. If they knew it was good for them, they would follow Jesus away. <laughs> John's understanding of who Jesus is and what that rightfully means leads him to the conclusion that it's better for those people to follow Jesus more than himself. Right? His own ministry pales in comparison to the importance of Jesus's. Right? In his response, John evokes that metaphor of the marriage that we talked about earlier. But John also places himself into that metaphor. In verse 29, he talks about a friend who attends the bridegroom which he says is himself. Now, in that time, the friend who attends the bridegroom was actually like a very important and formal role in the weddings. There's almost like a blend between being the best man and the wedding planner, right? The friend who attended the bridegroom was responsible for orchestrating the wedding and was a key part of it. It was also a position that allowed quite a bit of access to the bride. And so because of that, there were some pretty strict laws in many cultures that the friend who attended the bridegroom could not, or the friend who attended the bride could not marry the bride if the original wedding were to be called off for some reason. In some cases, like a sentence punishable with death 
if that law were broken. It was a role that came with a lot of trust and a lot of responsibility. John takes that responsibility seriously. He's in a position where, because of his popularity, he could try to wrestle attention away from Jesus. John was a popular teacher and minister in that time, but that's not what John does here. John's attitude of, he must become greater, I must become less, is the right response of a person who really knows Jesus. Right? The purpose of our lives is to magnify and testify to who God is and what he's done. Or simply to state it, to give God worship with our lives. God is better than fame or achievement or influence. Right? Loving him publicly over those things is worship. And John worships well. Loving God and treasuring his importance over John's own influence as a teacher. That's not just true about our personal lives, though, right? John the Baptist's teaching here doesn't stop with that statement of he must increase, I must decrease. John goes on to say that the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He who testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his ministry. Whomever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Paul talks about this as Christ being the firstborn of creation in Colossians chapter one. And it's the same kind of idea. The meaning is one of position. That God has given Jesus all authority over everything. He's the head of the church, the ruler of God's kingdom. Jesus is better than all created things. He is more important than and has authority over all created things. And John submits to that authority and importance of Jesus publicly and shows his disciples and us how to respond well to who Jesus is. By personally responding to Jesus, we affirm that sovereignty of God. John said, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. The it, right, being the testimony and teaching of Jesus. By embracing and responding to who Jesus is and what he's done, our lives stand as the certification that God is who he says he is and has done what he says he has done. Now, certainly John's attitude of he must increase and I must decrease are evidence of that. That God is faithful, and because of that, Jesus is better. So where do we go from here? I want to leave you with three main takeaways from this passage this morning. And I know sometimes when a preacher says, I want to leave you with three main takeaways, that's like mentally in the back of your head, you're hearing, okay, here we go, another 40 minutes. We do not have another 40 minutes. We're landing the plane here, folks. Point number one, immerse yourself in Jesus' teachings. John's response is a reflection of knowing and applying the word of God. We need to engage consistently with Jesus' teachings through regular study of his word. We can't respond to and apply what we don't know. This gives us life, and it helps navigate life's difficulties and challenges and opportunities with a Christ-exalting approach. Point number two, shift your perspective. 
When I lost Isaac, it changed everything about how I saw him and the world around us. Right, we need to intentionally seek eternal perspective on our lives. When faced with challenges, setbacks, or even mundane routines, consider how life with Jesus and the hope that comes from it allows a new way of understanding that situation. Right, we can let Jesus' wisdom shape our responses, our reactions, our attitudes, and when facing difficulty or uncertainty here, successes. Remember that the promise of eternal life should shape how we respond. When others see that attitude shift, sometimes it might prompt questions and we can use those opportunities to share about how Jesus makes all things new. Finally, point number three, redefine success. Right, John's willingness to decrease so that Christ could increase challenges us to redefine what it means for us to be successful personally. In a world that's focused on achievement and status and fame, we can strive for a deeper understanding that celebrates our purpose in worship. We should seek to elevate Christ, that he might increase everywhere. Right, we can let go of our personal ambition, recognition, pride, and choose humility by intentionally allowing Jesus to take the spot of importance. And may we all love Jesus like John the Baptist, giving him honor and priority in everything, worshiping him publicly, making much of who Jesus is. And if we really pay attention to that, to who Jesus is, it's the only response to him that makes sense. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are worthy of it all of all of it, Lord. Help us to really know you. Not to just know about you, but to know who you are personally. And Lord, let that change us. Let, us cha let it change how we see that the world you've made and how we see ourselves and our place in it. Would you send your spirit to give us the power and the ability to know you well? And would you help us to choose so closely and so tightly to desire you that all the other successes of life grow more dim? Jesus, nothing is as sweet as knowing you, as being loved by you, and celebrating who you are and what you've done. Help us to worship you well. We love you, Jesus. Amen.